Happy New Year! Good to see you all, and uh, welcome to a new year here at our church and uh, new opportunities for uh, gospel ministry and for God to do a good work here in us and through us. And so we're excited about 2016. We ended uh, 2015. Uh, I just think in some great ways, we had all our Christmas Eve services. We had around 4,000 people that attended our Christmas Eve services, and the gospel was preached, and we celebrated the baby Jesus, and that's a good way for a church to end the year, I think. Thankful for that. And uh, so I hope you've all had great holidays and times with your family and all the rest. Here we are now. School starts tomorrow, kids. That was a parent clapping. <laughs> and it's 2016. So this month here in, in uh, January at our church, we are going to be focusing on the family. And uh, we've done this over the years periodically, just take like a month or so and just talk about issues biblically related to uh, the family, and you might say, well, why, you know, why, why aren't we starting a new book series or something like that? And I have three reasons that we are doing this and why I think we'll continue to do this over the years ahead. The first is that these relationships within family are defined biblically. These are not culturally defined. They are not, uh, you know, uh, just up for grabs, whatever you want. These are categories that God has established in society that he has defined for what they are to look like. And so they are not just good ideas, they are grounded in the unchanging character of God himself. Secondly, is that these family relationships are sinfully distorted. You know, if you were to ask any of our pastors here, what, what are the number one areas that you are dealing with. And they would say, we would say, marriage, parenting, and issues related to those categories. Uh, you can ask law enforcement, what is their least favorite call, police call to make? And they'll tell you domestic disturbance, right? This is where the effects of the fall are most painfully felt is on the level of the family, and even here at Crown Point yesterday, an example of how painful these categories can, can be, if you saw the news of what happened yesterday. The third reason is that family relationships are restored spiritually. You know, if the cause for the breakdown of family and marriage, if those issues are primarily spiritual, it means that their resolution are, is also spiritual. And we rejoice to see that in our church. You know, we'll have families that begin maybe coming to our church or they're reached through people in our church. Sometimes it's actually the children, frankly, that, that begin kind of a spiritual journey and the parents kind of get interested. Maybe somehow Jesus is, becomes Lord of that family. The parents receive Jesus as their savior, begin to walk with, with Christ. And all of a sudden now, this family that has been in disarray, now there is a Lord of the house, and now there's a center, and now there's a purpose to that marriage, and now there is actually some help with what does it mean to parent? Like, how do we do that? And you see God bringing order to the disorder of that family, and that's primarily spiritual, okay? So 
since the church is the uh, pillar and foundation of the truth, we have a responsibility to hold high the biblical example and teaching about marriage and the family, and by doing that, to restore order where sin comes and creates chaos and pain. It's somewhat like uh, my, my family, Jennifer's parents, their family, they're from Kansas City. So over Christmas, we were with her family this year, so we drive to, to Kansas City. All the way there, white knuckle, because it was like the storm they called Goliath came through. We drove all the way through Goliath the whole way. And uh, so if you heard then last week, terrible flooding came to Missouri, like historic level flooding. So we got to see that as we came back through um, and drove home. You know, you get to the kind of the border of the Mississippi there, and, and uh, maybe you've seen flooding like this where there's just fields, but it looks like a lake. You know, that's what we saw. The Mississippi is a great blessing to the state of Missouri when the Mississippi is flowing within its banks. You know, you've got all the commerce and all the barges and you've got the beauty and all of that. It defines the border of Missouri when it's within its banks. But when it goes over its banks, it's destruction. Like 20 people died from the flooding last week. Marriage and family is like that. When it's the way that it's supposed to be, when it's flowing within the banks of the definition that God has given to it, it's a tremendous blessing. I mean, let's just face it. When you're on your deathbed, you're not thinking about your job and you're not thinking about your car. You're probably thinking about your family and those key relationships and how important they were in your life. Yes, painful at times, but these are the things that matter the most to us in our, in our, in our life are these relationships. But they also can be the source of the greatest pains that we experience in our life. And no doubt here, we're packed out here this service. How many people right now, as I say that, you're like, that's me. That son, that daughter, that spouse, that whatever, mom, dad, that relationship has been a defining pain in your life. And we see then how important it is that we get these right and do these God's way and to receive the blessing of common grace that flows to us when we follow the pattern that God established for marriage. Now, next week's message might be interesting to you. When my family isn't perfect. Coming off the holidays, I'm thinking many of us are going, hmm, that applies in a really poignant way to me. When my family isn't perfect. So that's next week. This week, though, we're talking about marriage, okay? Marriage God's way. And before I get into it, though, I want to say just a quick word to those of you who maybe currently are not married, okay? I know how these kinds of weekends and even these kinds of messages can go when you are not married and maybe you wish that you were. Not everybody's like that, but if that's you, uh, these can be not the, your, like, favorite sermons you've ever heard, right? And uh, kind of a reminder of maybe something that you wish was true in your life and, and isn't currently. And I know that very well. I got married when I was 44 years old. Not only did I have to endure hearing sermons about marriage, I had to preach sermons about marriage all those years. And so I am very keen on that kind of tension that you can feel in a message like this. And I just want to say that we would all do better, I think, if we had, if married people had a good and right theology of singleness, and if singles had a good and right theology of marriage. The Bible honors both categories, 
And uh, one way that we honor both categories is by being very interested in what the Bible has to say about both of them. And so today we're talking about marriage. We've talked about singleness many, many times here over the years, and we certainly honor that category of life as well. I also want to say that it's kind of fun and horribly convicting for me to speak on marriage now. I, I, this, I'm not sure, this isn't my first message on marriage since I got married, but I haven't done very many. It was easier to talk about it when I was single, frankly. <laughs> it's kind of like all the people that are experts in parenting or people that don't have kids yet. The experts in marriage are single people. And so I would go back and listen to my old tapes because then I really knew what I was talking about. Now I feel more conviction in what I'm going to share than, than I ever did before. But praise God for his grace. And we're going to get focused on, on that as well today. All right, so let's talk about marriage. And we're going to begin by just asking, what's the purpose of it? What is the purpose of marriage? And I think all married couples at some point in their marriage, one spouse or maybe both are probably asking the question about their marriage, like, what is the point here? What is the point? And biblically speaking, there are no pointless marriages. There are only marriages that are missing the point because marriage itself has a point and a purpose. And there are many, I'm going to highlight three here, and we begin back in Genesis, and if you were just to read through, uh, read through Genesis, you would quickly discover that one of the reasons that God established marriage was for human companionship. Human companionship. Here's Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Or some translations go with a helper suitable for him. One designed to fit him just right. My old me uh, mentor in ministry, when he would do weddings, he would, he would oftentimes say that Adam looked around and he saw the he pheasant and he saw the she pheasant. And he saw the he hippo and he saw the she hippo. But he looked at himself and he didn't see anything. It's supposed to make you sad, right? And there is a sense of sadness kind of for Adam here. It's only day one. He was single one day. I'm going to get to heaven and go big whoop, right? So uh, <laughs> it's, it's day six in creation, but Adam already is feeling alone, and God is feeling that for him. And we see that God, again, we're made in the image of God. God lives in community, Father, Son, and Spirit, that we are also made to be in community with other people and even a most intimate kind of community, which is what marriage is. And so God designed Eve as the perfect complement, C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N-T, complement to, to Adam. She complimented him. Now, we oftentimes think of this like in physical terms where she physically complimented him. She was suitable to him, and indeed she was. But this is much deeper than this. Eve is the perfect complement to Adam emotionally and spiritually in terms of just life. God made Eve to suit him just right. Think of the godliest couple that you've ever known in your whole life. 
Hopefully God's allowed you to be around some marriage where that marriage was so just like, they just seemed like one, right? You can't even imagine them not being together. Like he, he was suitable to her and his weaknesses and strengths were, and she complimented him in that. And if you see these couples over the years, sometimes they start looking like each other. Have you noticed that? What is that all about? I think it's about what God is saying here, that when he made Eve and when he made a wife, he was making somebody for Adam that would be the, in the divine plan, the perfect, suitable life companion for him. Helper here, by the way, is not demeaning. Maybe you're a wife here or a woman and you see a helper suitable for him and you're like, wait a second, that doesn't sound nearly honoring enough. You have to realize in the Bible, roles have nothing to do with value or worth. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a trinity. The whole basis of all truth is the triune God, three persons within that Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. Clearly, the Father is giving leadership to the Son and the Spirit, and each of them have their unique roles, yet they are absolutely equal in worth and value. We look at this kind of from a distorted perspective where what you do defines who you are, but in biblical terms, that's not the case. And so for a wife to be a helper to her husband says nothing about her inherent value. It is just her role in God's plan, a life companion. Husbands, I would dare say to you, if you maybe you've been married a while and maybe you're getting to the kind of what's the point stage of your marriage, I would... Uh, I would dare say that you are grossly underestimating how wonderful it is to have somebody to do life with you. Again, I got married in my 40s, and I can tell you over those years, when I was in my 20s, I was more like, man, it'd be great to have a sexual companion. And by the time I get into my 30s and 40s, I'm more like, man, I just like somebody to do life with, right? It's great to have somebody to say, hey, look at that, and what'd you think about this? Somebody to giggle with, somebody to go grocery shopping with, somebody to cuddle with. I think if you were to uh, not have her all of a sudden, you would realize how wonderful it is to have a life companion. We see that in our church sometimes, you know, these, uh, we'll have a widower, you know, a man whose his wife dies. And uh, oftentimes in our church, they'll get remarried like the next day, it seems like. <laughs> and you're like, what's going on here, right? What's going on there is that he loved having a companion in life. And when his wife is gone, he feels that so intensely. What a blessing a wife is. And I think it goes the other way as well, husbands to wives, um, life companionship. Ecclesiastes highlights this this way. Two are better than one. Two are better than one. And then list life categories where that is true. I would have to say this is one of my favorite things about being married, is having a companion in, in my life. I praise God for it. All right, so there's one purpose. Second purpose we find in Scripture is reproduction. There, I said it. Reproduction. You say, where's that in the Bible? Well, we back in Genesis 1. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. There you have it. 
Reproduction is one of God's purposes in marriage. Now, you don't hear this often from an engaged, I've never heard that from an engaged couple, maybe that we're doing pre-engagement counseling. Why do you want to get married? We want to get married so that we can be fruitful and fill the earth. They never say that, right? We want to get married because we're in love. We want to get married, we want to do life together. It's going to be so wonderful and so fantastic. Maybe if they're honest in private, they would say for sexual fulfillment. But notice that God doesn't command them to have sex here. God commands them to multiply. So one is the means to the other. But we can say from this that marriage wasn't made for sex. Sex was made for marriage and for pleasure. So if you're thinking about getting married and the only reason you want to get married is for sexual fulfillment, I would say you should not get married for that reason alone. There are much grander, greater, glorious reasons to consider marriage than simply that. Now in our culture, just a side note here, in our culture, our culture has disconnected human sexuality from human reproduction. And we have technologies and things available to us now that allow for that. And so in culture, children are the sometimes unfortunate consequence of sexual gratification. But you look in the Bible, and it's the opposite of that. Children are not the unfortunate consequence of sexual fulfillment. They are the wonderful blessing and fruit of that. Now, saying that, I know full well that that's not always the case. And sometimes couples are challenged with that. And if that is you right here, I want you to know God's got grace for that. And God is sovereign over that as well. But we can say, largely and generally speaking, that God's plan for multiplying the human race was to establish husbands and wives and for them to have children. The Bible honors that. Third purpose for marriage, I'm calling parable. And really, we're spending the rest of the time on this, okay? Parable, or to say, heaven on earth. Now, before you roll your eyes and say, he's still on his honeymoon, <laughs> getting up there, talking about marriage, talking about heaven on earth, honey, can you believe he would say that? <laughs> Don't say that, she'll slap you, right? Um, <laughs> Heaven on earth. Why am I saying heaven on earth? Think for me with a moment about how Jesus answered the theological and philosophical questions that were uh, posed to him. And if you read through the Gospels over and over and over again, people are coming to him asking the same kind of questions that we probably would ask him, very human kind of questions, oftentimes those spiritual ones, like when is your kingdom coming or what is the kingdom of God like? So the Son of God now, imagine the intellect, the wisdom, the knowledge of God himself. He is now going to answer to finite human beings truths that he knows in, complete, in completeness. I'm not saying this very well. He would have the ability, it'd be, like, it'd be like a PhD trying to explain something to a kindergartner, right? The PhD level class professor can totally blow away the kindergartner with knowledge about mathematics or science or geometry or whatever it might be, okay? He could do that. The Son of God could blow away everyone, including Nicodemus and John 3, who comes to him in the night, who was one of the great philosopher theologians of his day, 
going, what are you talking about, Jesus? He could have blown them away. But what does Jesus do? He takes the truths that are beyond us that he knows alone, and he explained them in a very earthly, understandable way. Okay, so what is the kingdom of God like? Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And all the kids that are in the front row listening to him go, I know what a mustard seed is, that little bitty seed, but look how big the tree is. And he goes, that's exactly right. It can have a very small beginning, but look, it fills the whole sky. Or it's like a man who built his house on the sand. And the, you know, the teenagers there are going, who would do that? Everybody knows it falls flat, right? In other words, he made it understandable. A parable, the old definition of parable, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. To understand marriage biblically, we have to think parabolically. We have to think of God's intent for marriage to be an earthly example of something that is greater and glorious, which infuses marriage with its meaning and its purpose. You disconnect that, and now it's just sort of a contract that you enter into or you get out from whenever you want. But connected to the heaven, like the story of the mustard seed is a silly story if you don't realize that Jesus is answering, what is the kingdom of God like? The mustard is not significant, but connected to the kingdom of God, now that becomes a very significant story. And marriage is glorious, it is high, it is holy, because it is a parable of something else. And what is that something else? And here is where the Apostle Paul explains the parable in Ephesians 5. Okay? Ephesians 5. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. I'm going to refer to this a few times. Ephesians 5. Probably the most significant teaching on marriage. 1 Corinthians 7 as well. But maybe the most significant in the entire New Testament. And I want you to see what and how Paul explains what marriage is like. Because I think if he was to do, if he was the guest speaker today, he apparently would be doing the same thing that I'm trying to do, drawing from his teaching here in Ephesians 5. So here's now Paul explaining what marriage is like. Wouldn't it be great if we had the Apostle Paul as the guest speaker here, speaking on marriage, pack the place out, what does the Apostle Paul think about marriage? This is what he would say. Husbands at Bethel Church, love your wives. Okay. Going to do that. How? Like, what's that mean? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So he's drawing it. He's connecting here. The husband is connected to Jesus in the church. Skip ahead to verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. And you see there the analogy again. Marriage is reflecting that relationship between Christ and the church. Therefore a man, verse 31, shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul, thank you for this teaching on marriage. Wait, look at verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
He gets to the end of what we think is a section on marriage, and he says, I'm actually talking about the relationship between Jesus and the church. And he draws the connection between that glorious reality with the earthly reality, which is marriage. Husband to church, church or sorry, Jesus to church, church to Jesus. The analogy on earth, husband to wife, wife to husband. There is a direct line between those two. So we take from this that a Christian marriage has as its goal, the, 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 the Mississippi River defining the border of marriage, I'm mixing metaphors here, <laughs> but the goal of a Christian marriage is to mirror in the way that I relate to my spouse the glorious reality of which marriage was forever intended to reflect. So God did not have Jesus come and die for the church and the church to believe in Jesus and to serve Jesus as a picture of what marriage ought to be like. God designed in eternity past marriage to be a reflection of what this relationship is like. Because of this purpose, marriage, the quality of a Christian marriage, will reveal the quality of each spouse's commitment and personal understanding of God's grace to them. Let me say it again. Because marriage is designed by God to reflect the nature of the gospel, Jesus in the church, the quality of this relationship will reveal each spouse's personal understanding and commitment to that glorious truth. And I wish I could just, like if, I, if, if ChristianMingle.com would give me like the rights to their website, which is one of these dating, Christian dating websites, pretend you've never heard of it. ChristianMingle.com, I would get on that site and I would want to say, hey, all you Christians out there looking for love, what makes a great spouse? And the answer to that is not what you see in the picture, which is photoshopped anyway. It's not what they do. It's not their education level. It's not the car or truck they drive. What makes a great spouse? And here's where now, th three and a half years into my own marriage, I've learned a few things about this. What makes a great spouse is whether my spouse gets the gospel, whether they understand the gospel. Now, I'm here to tell you that honeymoons are awesome. I got married three and a half years ago, actually right on this spot. That's kind of fun, isn't it? I stood right here on this stage, right here is where I made vows to my wife. And we went on our honeymoon. And on our honeymoon, my, seriously, like my wife was like an angel to me. It was transcendent. It was translucent. It was amazing, the honeymoon. After the honeymoon, 
two sinners go home to live with each other. And that's just the reality, isn't it? Two sinners are going to go home to live with each other. And romantic momentum only takes you so far, like a week or so. (laughs) And now, all of a sudden, what is making this thing work on the daily basis is not the ooey-gooey feelings that you have for each other. What is making this work is the character of each of the spouses. And that's what this is about. Do I get the gospel or not? Because when those two sinners are forced to deal with the reality of living with another sinner, now my understanding of God's grace to me becomes the total basis for whether or not I can give grace to the sinner I'm living with. If I get that I'm a sinner and God has given grace to this sinner, the extent to which I get that now, I am capable of giving grace to that sinner right there who happens to have the same last name as me. Which is why, by the way, singles and young people here, why you would marry somebody who has not made a faith commitment to that gospel, which is the basis for the success of your marriage, is beyond me. And further, I would add, why you would marry somebody who maybe pays lip service, but in your heart you don't really see it so much, but you hope maybe someday he'll come along. Why you would marry somebody to that, when the whole thing rests on whether they get the gospel and can apply it to you as a sinner, is also beyond me. Don't do it. Take it from Pastor Steve. Because after the honeymoon, and sometimes during it, what kicks in to make this thing work is a truth. I'll use Ephesians 4.32. You're almost there anyway in your Bibles. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This verse has a huge assumption in it. It is assuming that you get and appreciate, delight in how God has forgiven you. And in marriage, it's, it's amazing to me how dependent my whole happiness in my marriage is on Jennifer's willingness and ability to extend grace to me. I mean, it's like, because, you know, when two sinners come home and now all of a sudden things are getting kind of clunky and you've got that little offense of this, she said that, didn't do that, disrespected me in this way, I mean, me to her, Little side caveat, Jennifer read this entire sermon, okay? So it's sanctioned by her. Although that sentence was not in it when she read it, so. But she's at next service, it's fine. You marry somebody that doesn't have that supernatural spirit 
gospel, new creation, I'm a sinner and God has been gracious to me. Now, they might be from common grace, able to forgive, and certainly unbelievers can and have good marriages, but it's hard to see how that capacity comes without me personally being humble about my own sin. And then looking at the sin of my spouse, not as something so amazing, I I can't believe you would do that. But seeing my own sin as being greater than her sin. And now to see that and say, (laughs) okay, if God forgave me this, I can forgive you that. But man, so much weighs on that. There are so many moments in marriage. I feel like, I feel like the boy in the final scene of Apollo 13 where he's waiting for his, the, the, his dad, you know, the parachute to open, the capsule's coming down, they're in the clouds, they've lost contact, and, you know, I'll, I'll have done something I shouldn't have done, said something I should have said. Will you forgive me? And it's like, you know, because if this is not resolved, we're going to bed mad. We're like living this week mad. And so, will you please? And it's like that scene where, you know, you're just like, and all of a sudden, poof, there's the parachute. And when that parachute of grace and forgiveness pops open in marriage, it's just, you know, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Try and do marriage with a sinner that doesn't get the gospel, and marriage quickly freezes over. It's like the oil, there's no oil in the engine, just because inevitably you put two sinners together, there are going to be things that, so the point that I'm making is the point that Paul makes here, and that is that marriage is intended by God to reflect a greater glorious reality that is all about love and grace and forgiveness. It is an earthly reflection of that glorious, eternal reality. So we ought to ask the question, I'm going to ask you the question, it would, would a sinner, if, if, if somebody lived in your basement and heard through the walls and you know, occasionally had a dinner with you and all the rest, would they be drawn to believe in Jesus as their Savior, as a result of your marriage. Now, hear what I'm saying. By that, I am not saying that every time they listen, you're singing the Hallelujah Chorus, okay? Because the gospel is not that we're really awesome, perfect people, come, be Jesus and, or come to Jesus and be perfect like we are. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that we are sinners that are ongoingly in need of the grace of God. The gospel then in marriage is that we are sinners and we are ongoingly in need of God's grace extended to both of us. So with a person that's living in your basement, maybe hearing the things going on upstairs, get the idea that you are really, really good at applying the gospel to those points in marriage. And for them to hear you saying, I have failed, for them to know you did because they heard what you said through the wall. But for you to go to your spouse and to say, I ask you to forgive me. And for that spouse not to be like, that's the fifth time you've done that in the last month. Bible says I got to forgive you seven times and you got two more, buddy. (laughs) 
Is your marriage gospelly? And that takes, you know, both sides. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning, which infuses worth and dignity and value into your marriage. And how easy it is over marriage to slowly erode how high and holy that marriage is. Every marriage here, if you are married, it's not the quality of your marriage that gives marriage its value. It is what it is reflecting that gives it its value. So, this leads then, how do we reflect that relationship? And this is about roles in marriage. So how is the gospel displayed? So let's talk husbands and wives here a second. Husbands, in this parable, God has designed husbands to reflect Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean you're Jesus, and don't go home and say, call me Jesus, okay? You are not Jesus. But we are to reflect the role that he has in the relationship with the church, which is primarily love, lead, and serving your wife. Here's a few verses, Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.23, for the husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. 1 Peter 3.7, we recently studied this. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. These and others we could point to where consistently the husband's role and call is to love, lead, and to serve his wife. And we do a whole message on this, I think we have in the past. But just to say, what does it mean to love as Christ loved the church? Three things primarily. We are called to love first, we are called to love most, and we are called to love sacrificially. We love him, First John, because... He first loved us. In this relationship of love between Jesus and the church, it is Jesus that takes the initiative in the love. And similarly, husbands, and this is hard at times, man, I'll admit it, we're called to be the one in that moment who takes the initiative in giving love and extending grace, resolving conflict, to lead in love. And men, often we kind of let this be the wife thing. That's sort of a feminine thing, you know, the feminine. They're they're the the touchy-feely types. She can come to me. I'll forgive her when she comes to me. But that's not how Jesus relates to the church, is it? He takes the initiative. He came to us. We didn't go to him. We're to love first. We're to love most. Greater love is no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. And Jesus laid down his life for the church. Husbands, we're called to love. Who loves more, Jesus or the church? And the answer is clearly Jesus. Husbands, called to love more than the wife. And then to love sacrificially. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And the idea here is that our wives should, you know, they can think we're idiots, they can think that we, you know, They married beneath themselves, and they probably did. But in the end, they shouldn't question that we genuinely love them. 
And we have a whole lifetime to prove that, don't we? And we're going to fail at that, and that's why we need the gospel of grace and forgiveness. But the, the, in the grand scheme where our wives know that we love them, Sacrificial like Jesus, and this includes, I think, providing for wives. Husbands, we're called to provide for our wives. We're to provide for their material needs, their physical needs, and clothing, and shelter, and food, and um, nails, and I don't know about that, but (laughs) if you are not in a position to provide for your wife, don't get married. Don't get married. To be a husband is to provide for your wife. That's part of the deal. And to do so sacrificially, and this means sometimes that, actually oftentimes, you are denying yourself something that may be in your heart or in your single days, just to say, you would have enjoyed or done, so that she then can have something or an experience that would be a blessing to her, right? To do so sacrificially. So sometimes you're not getting the new ping driver, as another example, (laughs) so that she can have something that would be a blessing to her. Now, there are much more serious examples of what it means to love sacrificially, but I find in marriage, it's not so much the, you know, I'm going to, it's not the balloon rides that you provide. It's time, it's words, things like that, that say, I love you. I love you. Our wives should feel taken care of. I want to add this. So get a will. Have insurance to provide for them. Change the oil in the car. Cherish her. We men, we hate words like that, don't we? Cherish. You know, I want to go shoot deer for her. <laughs> Enough of the cherishing. Here's Bambi. I love you. (laughs) But wives want that confidence, that security of knowing that their husbands love them. In fact, if you were to ask me, Steve, three and a half years, biggest lesson in marriage, this would be the biggest lesson I've learned, is that to be a husband, and men and young men, I want you to listen to me right now. To be a husband is the death of your selfish self. Love is the death of self. We see that with Jesus dying on the cross for us. And to be a husband called to love the wife is dying in big and small ways to your selfish self. And if you're not prepared to do that, don't get married. To put her needs and her happiness ahead of your own. And that's not easy. Okay? Remember, I started the sermon by saying I feel more conviction than anything in giving the sermon. And that's really where the rubber meets the road. Now, here's the thing, is I have found that with women, and I'm no expert in women, but one little thing I've learned, with women, when they see that you are sacrificing to love them and to meet their needs, it's very hard to outlove a woman. Because now their heart opens, right? Or it should, ladies. Opens to his needs. And a healthy marriage is where, to quote, I think, Romans 12, where we are trying to outdo each other in honoring each other. 
As the husband takes the lead in the initiative, sacrificing, serving, loving, leading the wife, the wife now in the security of knowing his love to me is free to let all of her femininity flow in a blessing towards him, which also includes sacrifice and all the rest. And that kind of loving and mutuality is the marriage that I want to have. How about you? All right, wives. Okay, husbands reflect Jesus. Wives, you take your cue from the church. The role the church ought to have with Jesus. So here's Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. So you see the analogy there, right? Back to the parable. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And this is a whole other message, and we've done these in the past, but to summarize here, wives take their pattern, their cue from the church, and how the church responds to the servant leadership of Jesus. So, for example, should the church resent Jesus' leadership? Should the church usurp Jesus' leadership? Should the church talk bad about Jesus when she's getting her hair done? Should the church nag Jesus? Should the church fantasize about having a different Savior? Should the church enjoy entertainment that celebrates unfaithfulness to Jesus? And you see, when you put it in that way, all those things sound horrible, don't they? Or what kind of church would we, what kind of church would Bethel be if we treated Jesus the way you treat your husband? Would we be a healthy church? So, Wives, you are called to honor your husband, to, to submit willingly to his leadership, to be a helpmate and a friend and a lover. That's what it means to be a biblical wife. Does that mean that he deserves it? That he's so cool and awesome and fantastic that all you want to do every day is all of that? No. Why? Again, you're married to a sinner. You have to remember the gospel. That's where the the analogy breaks down in that Jesus is always the perfect Savior to us. Your husband will never be the perfect husband. But that's the gospel. We give grace to the sinner and to one another. So wives, can I ask you, how are you doing with that? How are you doing? And why does all of this matter? And the reason that it matters is that together, the husband and the wife, our purpose in being married is to display the gospel. In what ways? Three primarily. Number one, covenant. The permanence of God's love. What shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? You read that Romans 8 passage, it's like, yes, it's so fantastic. The enduring covenantal love that God has for us, that Jesus has for the church. Why does God hate divorce? Why is it saying something that isn't true when a husband and wife end a marriage? It's because Jesus will never divorce the church. We are covenanted to one another. We also celebrate the grace of God in the freedom of God's forgiveness as we extend grace to one another and we say, I forgive you and I will not hold this against you in the way that God doesn't hold my sin against me anymore. And love, 
This is just the joy of God's selflessness. This is not a drag to God. God's not in heaven going, oh, another day doing the dishes for this church. Another day going to work provided for this church. No, there is love. There's joy. Jesus loves being. Listen, Jesus loves being the Savior of the church. And the church delights that he is our Savior. And that kind of joy and gladness in that relationship for the husband and wife down here to be glad about it. And that's where we need grace and we need love in order to do it because we're all sinners, right? But that's where the gospel makes the difference in a Christian marriage. And your willingness to show grace to your perception of failure in your spouse may be the greatest indication in your life whether you get the gospel yourself. And spouses that can't somehow forgive something in their spouse, the issue may not be your marriage, the issue actually might be your eternity. Do you get the gospel? Do you understand the grace of God to you? Have you received a salvation that is God's grace? You didn't deserve it any more than your spouse does? Jennifer and I, I, you know, it's amazing how many things can get sideways in a marriage, isn't it? Little and big things. And we have found, like, the ability, we call it hitting the reset button. You know, like you go on the trip, and in, you know, within an hour, I said something I shouldn't have, or I forgot to pack something I said I would, or whatever it is, and now there's sort of that little, hmm. We call it hitting the reset button. We'll say that literally. Like, can, can we just hit the reset button here? And she and I both know what that means. That means that, like, whatever just happened, we are setting that aside because there's another eight hours here on this trip, and this is going to be miserable. Can we just hit the reset button? And that's the glory in a Christian marriage. God hit the reset with us in what Jesus did for us. And now as sinners receiving that grace, living with one another, we're all the time, click, 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 click. Hitting this reset button and extending grace to one another. And as we do that in big and small ways, the unbelieving world looks at Christian marriage and ought to and be like, how are you doing that? We have a family in our church, I'll end with this. We have a family in our church, and I don't remember the numbers, and I'm doing this off the top of my head, but it's like there's like 20 marriages in their family. Every single one of them have ended in divorce. Every one, it's an an amazing kind of statistic. The only marriage out of like 20 marriages in their family tree that has remained together is the family in our church. And the rest of the family keeps like going, what, what is your secret? Like, how are you doing this? We know you guys. You're like, it's just like us. How are you doing that? And what a joy Christmas Eve services to see a whole row of their family right here in the service and the influence that their marriage 
has had upon their unbelieving family. There is power in it. There is power and blessing. And I hope all of yours are blessed. Amen.